I love that crypto technology has allowed that kind of thing to flourish and for all this creative energy to go to these problems with technology that wasn't around a decade ago. Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation episode. David, we're pre-recording this, and this is uh, this is all on the back of ETH Denver, okay? I, uh, I'm watching from afar, so I'm the guy with FOMO, <laughs> like, deserved asking FOMO. you, deserved FOMO, asking you about all of the highlights I missed at ETH Denver, and you're the guy who went, mm -hmm. spoke at many of these events, and uh, can give me the ETH Denver experience as if I'm there. That's what today's episode is going to be about, right? That's exactly right. We are scaling out the vibes that we all experience at ETH Denver across the internet by reflecting and ideating about all of everything about ETH Denver. It was really, really cool. It's it's, Bankless listeners will know that I shill ETH Denver at every single opportunity. Uh, and I think the first like lesson or first like reflection that I have was that uh, I had this kind of pseudo- Oh, uh, oh moment going into ETH Denver when I realized that this thing is like three times bigger than it's ever been before. And there are so many new entrants coming into this conference. And I didn't know, like, is this ETH Denver going to be the same ETH Denver that I know and love? Or are the new people that came into 2021 going to actually share the same experience and share the same vibes of all the other previous ETH Denvers that I've been to? And the answer was unequivocally, Yes, the vibes were not just, were not diluted, but in much more instead amplified. Uh, it was even more of the same ETH Denver that I know and love. And so I'm, uh, I'm so like glowing from this whole entire conference because it was such a fantastic experience. That's awesome. So guys, David on Twitter said it was the best week of his life. Um, hands down. So uh, want to hear about that. Not even close. Hands down. So we're going to talk about that. Also, we have some content for you coming up in today's show straight from ETH Denver. So, David, uh, what are we going to be looking at um, after you and I talk about ETH Denver for a bit? There's, uh, I think, two two clips, maybe two interviews that we thought were worth highlighting, yes. and we wanted to get on the Bankless podcast. What are the things upcoming in these, this episode? Yeah, so there were two uh, panels or interviews that I hosted uh, on, on the main stage at ETH Denver. Uh, one of them was planned. One of them was not planned, and I'll talk about that one second. Uh, the first one was uh, a, a talk which we titled... Uh, transcending individualism and collectivism, and that was with Kevin Owaki and Eric Voorhees. Both of these two individuals are Coloradians, Coloradians uh, who are very big in crypto and think crypto can make the future better because of what crypto has to offer. But they think it it does that via very different routes. Eric Voorhees is a uh, a very famous uh, libertarian. Uh, I think he's perhaps a libertarian thought leader is a way to describe Eric Voorhees uh, in this space. We've had him on the podcast uh, multiple times before, both both great episodes. Uh, and he's coming in on the side of individualism. Uh, and Kevin Owaki is, is coming in on the side of collectivism, saying that it's actually collectivism is how we fund public goods. Uh, and so Eric Voorhees and Kevin Owaki have had friendly Twitter spats every time, every now and then they, they go back and forth on Twitter and debating about whether, uh, how to fund public goods and whether taxation is coercion or how we can fund public goods using crypto. And this is a ongoing conversation between these two uh, leaders in the cryptocurrency space. And so this was the first time we've had this conversation able to be hosted in person. So I was honored to be able to, to moderate a friendly debate, debate's not the right word, but a friendly conversation between these two people that are 99.9% .9 aligned but disagree on 
the priorities of how, as a society, we should fund public goods. So that was a fantastic conversation. Do you know those two are, it, I I'm actually haven't listened to this yet, but those two are the archetypes for this like dichotomy uh, I see in crypto. You know, the political compass uh, thing, mm -hmm. you've seen that. So totally. you've got sort of a, a quadrant, you've got the, the, the top two um, squares of this quadrant, uh, you know, authoritarian. So the, the, the top part is authoritarian. The bottom part is more libertarian. And then you've got like economic left and economic right. So rather than, Rather than most of our political landscape is like, people think of left and right, but I also think like there's also the political compass as you're either authoritarian or libertarian. I think of Eric Voorhees as libertarian right. Mm -hmm. Most people in crypto are in the bottom part of of this um, this crypto box. Is inher inherently bottom, yeah. Yeah, inherently bottom because it's inherently anti-authoritarian. But Eric Voorhees lives in the libertarian right uh, square. And uh, Kevin Iwaki lives in the libertarian left square, right? He thinks that, you know, there, there are collective goods, there are public goods. And, and I think at some level, this can also be a dichotomy between Ethereum and Bitcoin. You often see that breakdown, though you, though you see both. Uh, so that's why I think it's the perfect conversation because both of those two embody these two ideas in crypto that are unified in being anti-authoritarian, but have some, um, you know, they're a bit at odds, whether we're more collectivist or more individualistic. Uh, and I think that's uh, interesting. So I can't wait personally to listen to that, but that's just the first content piece. What's the second, David? Yeah, the second one is the unplanned piece of content, which uh, I was just shocked that this happened. Uh, and I was, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to seize this opportunity. There was a surprise guest going into East Denver that uh, was not on the agenda, but as soon as he showed up in the room, uh, we cleared out the agenda for the, on the main stage talk so, so this man can speak. And that man is none other than Andrew Yang, decided to show up at, at East Denver. Uh, a few people kind of had the idea that he would come, but 99.9% .9 of the people at East Denver had no idea that Andrew Yang was going to be there. Uh, and, and he rolled in, right through the doors, and immediately just gets swarmed by everyone wanting to really? just like, Oh, God, yeah. Like it, he, it was like a dog pile of people trying to like <laughs> talk, talk to Andrew Yang, myself being one of them. And this is right on the heels of- Andrew, uh, Andrew, look at me. Yeah, it's like, hey, can you like, can we do it? And uh, I, I lined up and made all the requests uh, everyone else was doing. Um, uh, this was on the heels of me and uh, Bankless Content Operations Editor Luke. Uh, we're going around East Denver with his camera and, and a microphone, and I was just doing these micro interviews, five to ten minute interviews of people's experience that's also coming later on the Bankless uh, podcast sometime somewhere, um, or at least on the YouTube. Uh, and uh, so we went up to Andrew Yang. He's like, Andrew, can we do a, a, just a quick five to ten minute interview about like why you're here and stuff? Uh, and some one of uh, his uh, posse uh, was like, wait, do you just want to like have that interview but on the main stage? And I was like, well, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and so we, we went over to the green room. Uh, we went over just a quick agenda of what we wanted to talk about. Uh, and then we just hopped right on stage and had a, a 40 minutes of just me interviewing Andrew Yang on stage at East Denver uh, and a, a little bit of a uh, Q&A at the end of it. Uh, personally, an extremely surreal experience because the room got filled up. And when I looked out at the crowd, it was just what looked like a thousand people watching me and Andrew Yang on stage. And Andrew Yang just absolutely crushed it. He brought the energy, he brought the excitement. <laughs> just like every time he talked, there was applause. Uh, and so uh, I was just like dumbfounded by this opportunity. And now we get to showcase it on the Bankless podcast. 
That's super cool. And none of this was planned. He was just like a, uh, he decided to come to the ETH Denver conference at, uh, at a whim just to see what's up, see what the community's doing. Yeah, well, he's really found alignment with the crypto people. I think in the world of politics, Andrew Yang kind of has a, a tough time because of how middle of the road he is. And so he's like an enemy of both sides. He's not, he's not Democrat enough to be Democrat. He's not Republican enough to be Republican. Uh, and he's fine. And, but the crypto people don't really identify by those terms. And also, Andrew Yang's always been a futurist and also an optimist. And if there's any two qualities that crypto has, it's futurist and optimist. Uh, and so he's found resonance with the Web3 community. And so he started what is basically a DAO called Lobby3, which is what he's announcing on stage uh, and, and talks about how he finds alignment with the Web3 community. He also, I don't know if this was, this is the first time I've heard about this, but this might be Alpha, Ryan, where he talks about, he talked about how the Biden administration in the next two weeks is going to drop an executive order that is going to, I think, force uh, regulatory agencies to actually put into uh, create clarity about our industry and so he's got wind of this executive order coming out of Bi the Biden administration that's going to force clarity which is both scary because it's going to make legislation happen that is going to regulate our industry but also an opportunity because we all we also want this uh, God, don't so screw it up guys please don't mm -hmm. screw it up I bet we'll be talking about this, though. Yes, 100%. Now. And Andrew Yang, I think, really kicked off that conversation at East Denver. So a really important conversation to listen to. And the, I, we didn't get this in the video, but this is, sadly was not included in the, in the interview. But when he walks up on stage, uh, he just does it. He doesn't even wait for anyone to introduce him. He just walks up on stage and grabs a microphone and goes, it's Andrew effing Yang. <laughs> Sadly, I think you might be able to find that on the long, the long ETH Denver uh, live stream on the YouTube account. Uh, but the, sadly, that that part didn't make it into the Does interview. that work for you when you walk into your room? It's David effing Hoffman. <laughs> no, absolutely not. People just cringe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, we're going to get into those. So, so guys, expect a podcast in three parts. First, we're going to talk about some other ETH Denver vibes because I still want to pick your brain for a little mm -hmm. bit. Then we're going to get to that Eric Voorhees and uh, Kevin Owaki conversation and then the Andrew Yang. Uh, but first, Dave, before we get into the meat of this, we got to talk about our friends at Notional Finance. Look, man, this is a, a fixed rate loan on DeFi. Okay. Was it uh, a week ago, last week, the week before? Mm -hmm. BlockFi got shut down. Basically, no new BlockFi accounts can be created. That is centralized uh, lending and, and borrowing products. Uh, Notional is a decentralized finance product. It cannot be shut down. If you still want your crypto fixed rate loan, if you want to earn some interest on your USDC, on your ETH, on your uh, wrapped Bitcoin, what else they got, DAI, you can do that. Fixed rate loan, so the terms don't change once you lock it in. It's like 7.8% on USDC, uh, a lot of value locked here. So uh, 450 million right now. Uh, and I just love these types of products because like, how's this compared to a bank account? How are you doing in your Wells Fargo savings account, David? What's your interest rate, buddy? Oh, God, ne negligible. I don't even know the number <laughs> just because I don't even think that it exists. If they I didn't got... pay me any interest rate, I would have no idea. Do you know, uh, I don't know if you've gotten it, but they send you the, ta the tax docs mm -hmm. on like the, and the, it's got a line of interest. Mm -hmm. I, got, I made like um, 50 cents or something, a dollar <laughs> in my accounts. Do, what are you going to do with that, Ryan? I'm going to file with the IRS and show them <laughs> that I made that dollar. <laughs> so it's silly. Anyway, Notional, fantastic product. You guys should go check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, if you want to earn some stablecoin interest, 
go do that. Go check it out. Um, all right, man. Why don't we start with this, David? Because you wrote this uh, really cool post that kind of summed it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some of the things ETH Denver, the eight things you missed at ETH Denver. We'll talk about those eight content pieces and some of the vibes going in. But maybe set the stage for us because ETH Denver has changed a lot since uh, 2018, where you went for the first time. I don't know. Did it start before that as well? Was there an nope. ETH Denver like 2017? Nope. No, 2018 2018. was the first one. Yeah, I've been so to 2018, every collected every single POAP. 2018, 3,000 people is what you said. Now, ETH price was $600. That was before we, we were knew we were deep in the bear market. We we're just entering it. Uh, ETH Denver 2019, 4,500 people. That was deep bear market territory. $100 ETH, the contrast point. ETH Denver 2020, 6,000 people. Okay, we hadn't really recovered, but all the tourists left. But still, increased attendees by 1,500 to 6,000 people. This was right before COVID. And then of course, nothing last year in 2021. And now this year, what did we hit this year? How many people? 12,000 people is the estimate. 15,000 people were given tickets and expected that 12,000 people actually showed up. This this event was completely saturated. Uh, And and like I said earlier, I was worried about this just kind of like diluting the experience. But no, it just didn't happen. And what's what's not listed here because it's kind of hard to quantify is like the energy at each of each of these events. Twenty eighteen had some pretty good energy. It was my first one. I didn't really know what to how to compare it. Uh, and the energy was was infectious to begin with. That's eighth Denver twenty eighteen was why I dropped everything and got into crypto in the first place. Like experiencing Ethereum and Ethereum culture firsthand. Did you um, literally plan to do it at the conference? Like coming out of that conference, where you're just like, okay, this is it. I'm all in. No, I, I was in twenty eighteen, my first ETH Denver. I was planning on going to the conference just to check what's up because this, this thing is interesting. But on Sunday of the conference, the last day of the conference, I was planning on going up to Boulder. Colorado to to our physical therapy school because that was my plan. I was going to go to physical therapy school. Wow. But then Sunday came around and I was like, you know what? Like physical therapy school is 45 minutes away. And also this, like that's a 45 minute Uber that I'm gonna have to do to tour this thing. And also this Ethereum thing is really cool. The conversations (laughs) I have are really awesome. And you know what? Like, I think I'm just going to go all in on this Ethereum thing. Yeah. Uh, And that, and that, that was, that was it. That was ETH Denver 2018. Amazing. Uh, I, I, I literally had this uh, moment where I was talking with a uh, one of the uh, talking with a talker or one of the panelists after a talk and just just share like shared brains with him for like 30 minutes straight and just and he told me he was like yo whatever you're doing like you need to get into this space and so I went and just like sat down and had this reflection moment it's like oh yeah I'm going in I'm going into crypto I don't, <laughs> I don't know I still don't know what Ethereum is I still don't know what the hell I'm gonna do but there's yeah. no chance I'm gonna miss it okay so that was December 20, 2018 uh, right like you said right at the cusp of the bear market uh, and then ETH Denver 2019, uh, we was like, you know, everyone was wrecked. Everyone was broke. Like there, there was no, no tourists. There was, uh, everyone had left, but it, from, from 2018 to 2019, the vibes and the energy of ETH Denver was like twice as strong. So even though like our portfolios were just like one tenth the size, 
the energy and excitement about Ethereum was like like twice as strong. And then that pattern continued the next year. It's like it got even stronger. Like the ETH price recovered a little bit, but definitely was not out of the bear market. But the vibes in 2019 were stronger and in 2020 were stronger. Uh, and then in 2022, this last week, they just absolutely exploded. Like the, the numbers of people that showed up exploded. The, the types of content, the number of stages, the who we had. Andrew Yang was there. Uh, and so like, it, it's just a, a complete fantastic symptom or a sign of adoption when you have like 15,000 people get tickets and 12,000 of them actually show up. That's awesome, man. Uh, the best week of David's life. Well, let's talk about some of the, the must watch ETH Denver panels, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be showing two of those panels, two of the panels today, but there are some others to add to your list. Uh, maybe let's just go through them real quick. There's eight of them. What's the first one? Yeah, this is a, the first one of was, of course, Vitalik's keynote speech. He was on stage for an hour, so it's a long interview, and it's titled Steps to the Digital State, uh, and then also an open AMA at the at the end of it. Uh, and so this was uh, Vitalik's main appearance at ETH Denver, um, uh, and it's all about just, like, kind of where we are in, um, in Web3, and also talked a little bit about the city of Denver itself and Denver's role in instantiating public goods. There seems to be some sort of connection between Denver and long-haired, bearded people that care about public goods. <laughs> Kevin Owaki and Danny, Danny Ryan come to mind. Uh, and everyone enjoyed that, of course, because it was Vitalik. Uh, and then number two, we have Web3 in politics and Lobby3. That's the Andrew Yang conversation, am I right? Yeah, this is the one that so listeners about are to about to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, number three, you've got listed the off-chain internet uh, with Evan McMullen. What's that about? Yeah, Evan McMullen has completely what I call has disco-pilled me. Disco is this uh, decentralized identity app that's coming. Uh, and I think she has really cracked the nut of decentralized identity. Decentralized identity is being ta has been tackled or has it been attempted to be tackled by many, many people in many, many different routes. Uh, but what Evan McMullen is building with her team over at Disco, I think she's cracked the nut. Uh, and her talk, I think, really illustrates why NFTs are actually not good for identity. Because think about this, Ryan, like your Ethereum address is public, like everyone can see it. But your identity inherently isn't public. Your identity is you and you need to be able to have choice about how you express that. And so first we need to have privacy with regards to, to who we are and our, our identity. And that means like not putting stuff on chain. Uh, she uses this line, the space between the chains. Uh, and so uh, the, it, it's what we've, we've coined the term, the off-chain internet. So everything about like properties of trustlessness and immutability and verifiability, but doesn't actually ever become a transaction on Ethereum. That's what that talks hmm. about. That's interesting. Uh, I think that's a, a space worth watching too. Mm. Well, here's another uh, ETH2 panel as well. Uh, who are these individuals on the ETH2 panel? This is the road to ETH2. That's number mm -hmm. four, David. Yeah, Cayman Nava, Alex Stoke, and Alex Stokes and Preston Van Loon were interviewed by Mackenzie Sigalos, who I met. Mackenzie is a, a, a new to me, a new reporter on the scene out of a CNBC, specifically covering crypto. And I got introduced to her because somebody told me that hey, like there's this uh, crypto reporter out of CNBC who actually like knows what she's talking about and uh, is very well informed about the nuances and the deep dives about crypto. So not only is this a fantastic panel just to talk about where we are in Ethereum. Uh, 2.0 development, even though the nomenclature for Ethereum 2.0 is deprecated, so don't use it. But also, uh, Mackenzie is somebody that I'm now paying attention to as a source of quality, good crypto information uh, that is coming from a more mainstream uh, news source, CNBC. 
Does this mean we have to stop making fun of CNBC, David? I, uh, we can a little yeah, bit, a little, a little, a little bit. bit. Ah, yeah. we'll still make fun of mm-hmm. uh, Ethereum proof of stake in our solar punk future. That's number nine with uh, Danny Ryan. What's this about? Yeah, this is all unpacking the nuances of proof of stake and why proof of stake. Why we've, as a Ethereum community, elected to go to proof of stake, uh, the the strengths that proof of stake has in its security over proof of work, uh, and also just some technical explanations as to what's actually happening when we take out proof of work and input proof of stake instead, uh, and then and then it just has some great graphics and um, some illustrations that really help people reason about proof of stake. Uh, Danny's actually sent me some of those slides, and so I'm using some of those pictures in a coming article that's going to help debunk Lynn Alden's recent anti proof of stake. Uh, tweets, which I think are just inherently wrong, and Danny's talk will is our is really good um, evidence for that. By the way, we're having Lynn Alden on the podcast in the future to talk about her proof of stake article and and hopefully have some uh, good back and forth, maybe some uh, good natured uh, debate about that uh, too. So Danny Ryan, of course, is like a primary person responsible mm-hmm. for helping bring. Uh, I'm going to call it Ethereum 2, but the next generation of Ethereum 2 to market uh, or to, to, to the public. Um, this, the sixth is the transcending individual and collectivism, individualism and collectivism, which uh, we could skip because you're going to hear that here shortly. The seventh is a self shill. So <laughs> you, you gave a conver- you had a conversation too. Crypto is here to set you free by David Hoffman. What's, uh, what's that about? We actually don't have to talk too much about them, that one because that's actually going to come out as an article on the Bankless okay. newsletter <laughs> on Wednesday. But basically, the theme is uh, Kevin Owaki recently wrote a line, crypto's not here to make you rich, it's here to set you free. Being being wealthy, being a prerequisite to being free, so these aren't at odds with each other. Uh, but it also talks about how in Web2 and TradFi, we have in, in, inwardly concentrating wealth, as in things collect towards the center. But in Web3 and DeFi, we have social structures, we have DeFi apps, we have Web3 protocols that push wealth and value and governance out to the margins. And the key innovation that really unlocked that to happen is to have private keys because private keys allow for wealth to actually be routed like a mailbox out to the margins. And what does society look like when we have a new equilibrium about how wealth uh, collects to, and we're, uh, it collecting at the margins versus the center? Uh, so that's what that talks about. Number eight, what's this? How to contribute to DAOs by uh, Trake. Tracheopteryx, we've had him on the podcast. He's all, it's just always great using great nature and biology metaphors to illustrate yeah. how DAOs organize. Uh, and then, so he's just taken his experience uh, working with Yearn and coordinating with Yearn to a talk about how to contribute to DAOs. Eight pieces of content for you guys, two of which are already in this uh, this episode. So just stay tuned. You'll knock two out of the way, but six more for you in that. And then uh, some bonus things. There are some, some fun vibes. So like, you know, part of going to a conference is always like the conversation that happens, the different themes that are flowing through all of the people you talk to. Uh, this this was one. So Vitalik became a Buffagorn. What's this about? Yeah, so the, the we have a mascot at East Denver. It's Buffy the Buffercorn. Uh, it's a unicorn buffalo. <laughs> which we made up. Um, and it's, as it turns out, I don't know if he was wearing it 100% of the time, but Vitalik definitely put on the Buffacorn <laughs> like, suit and walked around East Denver, which I think is just brilliant because, you know, when you... when. <laughs> I had, I had a little bit of this experience as well. So if people know who you are and you walk around East Denver, like you can't actually go anywhere because you get stopped along the way. And Vitalik, you know, 
It's Vitalik. Like, if it happens to Andrew Yang, it's going to happen like right. five times more to someone like Vitalik at an Ethereum conference, yeah, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And so, in order, I, I don't know if he meant to meant to do this to dodge all of those people, but I mean, it's pretty justifiable. So he put on the Buffacorn suit, <laughs> and like no one knew it was him. And so he got to experience East Denver completely invisibly because it was Vitalik inside of the Buffacorn mascot suit, <laughs> dude. Awesome. It was so good. A, a little, a little sweatier, but uh, yeah. Little, Definitely. Look at this before and after. I love. <laughs> yeah. So he he actually had a, t a panel that he had to attend, and no one could find him. But then the Buffacorn showed up, and the Buffacorn just sits down, and then it's Vitalik <laughs> inside of the Buffacorn. <laughs> I love this tweet. My entire net worth is in this man's hands. It's Vitalik staring down at a clipboard, uh, dressed in his uh, Buffacorn <laughs> suit, half zipped up at this uh -huh. point because it's got to be sweaty in there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's cool. All right. Another thing that happened is uh, DevCon 7 was announced. So a conference announcing another conference. But yeah. what's special about DevCon? Oh, DevCon, I think, is the other most significant Ethereum con uh, conference. This one hops around the world. So this one's in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, last time it was in Osaka, Japan. Before that, I can't remember where, Prague, I think. Uh, and so finally, after a, over a year and a half, I think, now of kicking DevCon 7 out because of COVID, it's finally been officially announced October 11th through 14, 14th in Bogota, Colombia. It is the biggest Ethereum conference of all time every single year. Uh, and so if you're interested in that, uh, plan out ahead because now we know the dates. That's cool. First time in um, uh, South America as well, which mm -hmm. is uh, kind of neat. Uh, MakerDAO became cool again. The OG DeFi project became uncool for a period of time, but it's cool again. What's that? Yeah, this is my claim. Uh, they This is the <laughs> first ever party that MakerDAO threw. And for those that don't, don't know, if you go to a conference, there's just infinite numbers of parties every single day. And MakerDAO threw a party and everyone was raving about it. It was in this very uh, cool church, very cool venue. Uh, the music was great. And this it would not have ever been able to happen when the Maker Foundation, the centralized version of MakerDAO, the Maker Foundation was around because they were so hamstrung by legal and compliance uh, that they just couldn't do anything cool. Sort of or ironic fun. for a DeFi project, isn't it? You're right. hamstrung by compliance. Totally. Um, and well, th th and that was a big critique of MakerDAO in the first place, where. Um, they had always, uh, they started off very decentralized and very organic, like these 10, 15 people that didn't really have any legal structure. And then they realized like, you know, this is just going to go a lot faster if we just centralize this thing. And so they centralized it under the Maker Foundation, uh, which, you know, paid out salaries, W2 employees, stuff like that. Uh, but then the Maker Foundation was dissolved about a year and a half ago, I believe. Um, and ever since then, MakerDAO, in my opinion, has started to do some really cool things. Um, I attended the, a dinner of like the 30, 30 to 40 Maker people. And every single time I hang out with the Maker people, I'm just overwhelmingly impressed by how smart and convicted they are and loyal they are to MakerDAO. Like all of them believe that MakerDAO is the future, which is something that I think the rest of the crypto industry can't really figure out how to wrap their heads around. And I think that's because of the foundation, the, the centralized foundation has really just limited how awesome MakerDAO has been allowed to be. But now that the Maker Foundation is gone, I think MakerDAO has leaned into becoming cool again. So this is my claim that MakerDAO is cool again. 
That's cool. All right. Another one is uh, alt layer ones buying love. So uh, who's paying for this conference It's mm -hmm. generally a set of sponsors. And uh, was that alternative layer ones this year? Were they many of the sponsors? There were many, many sponsors and a significant number of them were alternative layer ones, both Harmony and Avalanche were alternative layer ones or a few others that, that uh, I'm forgetting that uh, sponsored East Denver. Um, and th this has always been a theme with Ethereum conferences is that like, Ethereum killers or, you know, whatever you want to call them, alternative layer ones have always sponsored them because they need to buy access to like eyeballs and community. And this is actually something that we learned after DevCon 5. And I remember NLW from uh, the Breakdown podcast made this comment about how alternative layer ones need to bend, like have to ask the Ethereum community for legitimacy. Uh, and, and so this is definitely something I saw here at ETH Denver where alternative layer ones were, were paying their way into relevancy into, in this Ethereum conference to a little bit of, to the frustration of the, the Ethereum community who wanted the Ethereum leaders and the Ethereum builders to be on stage where other, uh, alternative layer ones had to buy their act, way act, buy their way into. Uh, and you know, this is, we've seen this before and it's happening again. Um, alt layer ones buying people's love. It's funny. I mean, somebody's got to pay the bills yet at the mm. same time. Can you really buy love? Can you buy a community? Can you buy uh, legitimacy? It's, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Uh, it works in the short run. It's hard for the longer term. Also bankless merch everywhere. It's a yes. real photo. This is the Dow punks. These are the Dow punks. Uh, bankless merch was absolutely everywhere. That's uh, fun. It felt like 5% of the people were wearing some sort of bankless merch, whether it was the <laughs> bankless collegiate hoodie or the ultrasound summer shirt or one of the many other derivatives of bankless merch that we had. The Dow punks were out in force. This, the, this photo I just took just because all these people happened to be around me all at the same time. Oh my but there God, were like awesome. three times as many of the as, uh, people shown in this photo that were actually out and about ETH Denver wearing their Dow punk t-shirts. Um, for those that don't know, Dow punks is a project out of the bankless Dow and you, it's a, 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 you know, profile picture NFT um, uh, projects that, you know, we all know, like, like, you know, board apes or crypto punks, but um, specifically built out of the bankless DAO. But the cool thing is, is you get to have a shirt that has your DAO punk on it. So while uh, they're all DAO punk shirts, no two shirts are the same just because no two DAO punks are the same. So those, those are the DAO punks that showed up in absolute force uh, at ETH Ember. That's cool. Uh, reminds me, I got to cash in uh, at least one, one more of my DAO punks for a mm -hmm. t-shirt. Mm -hmm. Um, Lastly, a lot of bankless <laughs> listeners think I'm Ryan. What? Uh -huh. Did that happen? Yeah, at, at least like That's five. I think you are Ryan. Yeah, I that thought say. David was Ryan. Yeah. yeah. So at least five or six times, people would like, like when I would, they would walk by me and they would just like, yeah, like, hey, Ryan, it's great to meet you. I, I love the podcast. I'm like, nope, David. I'm David. Do you know what that's, you know, it's funny. I think, I don't know if I saw this on Friday or Saturday, but uh, a tweet showed up in my timeline mm -hmm. and it was like, uh, I'm loving this talk by Ryan at ETH Denver. He's just <laughs> hopped on the conference stage. And I look at the picture and it's a picture of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know how people are, are mixing this up. I guess we do look a little bit alike, at least not, at least not when I have a beer. Our It's just voices, man. You know, people so. don't know whose voice is who. I Anyways, guess that's it. Ryan, but I thought, I thought we had this meme pretty well instantiated. David is the one that goes the to real conferences one, the real, and the Ryan is the person. one that stays home because he's AI. <laughs> like I thought, we, I thought everyone knew this. Yeah. Come on. What's going on? I guess yeah. we have to mean that a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. Um, well, that's awesome. That's, uh, the Denver experience at a high level. 
um, I think we should get into into the uh, the rest of these panels, these conversations. Yeah. Uh, so should we roll with that or any other parting words here? No, that, that's exactly right. Other than the fact that East Denver needs to scale, uh, there were like hour long lines to get into the conference. So yeah, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't a perfect conference. Um, um, so like it, you don't have to feel too much FOMO, especially if you don't want like people were waiting in li- uh, uh, the COVID testing line because you had to get tested to get in for like two hours. Um, so what, the, what we've learned with this East Denver is that the, the venue that we've always used, the, the, East, uh, the sports castle is what it's called, is too small. Uh, <laughs> next year, we've got to do the convention center. There's literally no other bigger conference or bigger venue that, that other than that one. So you, you get into that size. I mean, 15,000 people is uh, that, that's a pretty big conference. So for mm-hmm. sure. So guys, uh, stay tuned for the conversations we're about to have with Eric Voorhees and uh, Kevin Owaki is the first one. And then a- the Andrew Yang conversation straight from ETH Denver. Before we get to those, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet with over 50 million monthly active users. Control your digital footprint with built-in privacy and ad blocking. Inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave wallet, the first secure crypto wallet built natively inside of a Web3 crypto browser. Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. The Brave wallet is different. Brave wallet is built natively inside the Brave browser, no extension required, which gives the Brave wallet an extra level of security versus other wallets. With the Brave wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap your crypto assets, and you can even manage your NFTs and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to switch to the Brave wallet. Download Brave at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure you're getting the best possible price on your trade. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your trade across all the various liquidity sources in Ethereum. And is also operational on Polygon, Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, and other chains. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me in a single easy to use platform and allows me to make limit on-chain orders. So you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. So if you guys have been paying attention to both Eric and Kevin on Twitter, every once in a while they get into a debate around public goods. Uh, And if you guys know, Eric is a very big libertarian, and Kevin is really, uh, I guess I'd call him a collectivist? I'm not sure if that's true or not. Anyways, while these two men have done so much for this industry, and they are 99.999% the same, they tend to disagree on one thing, and that is the priority of individualism versus collectivism. So we're going to unpack this today on the Spankless Podcast. And so, I'm going to start with you, Eric. Eric, 
Why is individual, individualism at its very essence good, and how does crypto enable individualism? All right, well first I, I want to clarify something that I am only an average size libertarian. I am 5'11", so there are bigger ones than me. Um, all right, so rephrase your question. Why is individualism good, and how does crypto enable individualism? All right, uh, so I'm actually a little bit disappointed that even answering why individualism is good has to be a thing now. This, this, used, to be, this used to be like understood by most people, at least in America, that all individuals are you know, people with different preferences. And to respect individuals as themselves with their own preferences is like a really good basis for civilization. Um, somehow it's become an extreme position to advocate for individualism and uh, one of my favorite things about the crypto world is that it's starting to bring that back and empower people as individuals. And Kevin, a very, very similar question to you. Why is collectivism good and how does crypto enable collectivism? <laughs> Hello. Um, first off, I want to say Shapeshift is awesome. Thank you for everything you've done for this space, Eric. You're a legend. Um, Kevin, a little closer to the mic, please. I love Shapeshift. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, sorry, I love Shapeshift. <laughs> what, so your question was, why is collectivism good? Why is collectivism good, and how does crypto enable it? Yeah, so... Um, Collectivism uh, is the idea that if we, uh, is that a, a lot of the value that we get out of society is from things like public goods and things that are in the commons. So things like clean air, like transportation networks. Uh, this whole space is enabled by the internet, which was uh, researched at ARPA uh, through a government grant. And so the idea here is that public goods are good. 80% of the value that we get from our lives is from public goods. What good is a Lambo if the sky is on fire? And public goods are good, and we tend to, we tend to take them for granted until we don't have we don't have them anymore. You don't realize you don't have clean air until you're breathing toxic air. You don't realize that our digital infrastructure is underfunded until there's a black swan event and there's a huge hack. And so basically the idea is that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and even the most successful entrepreneurs in this space have been standing on the shoulders of giants. They've been enabled by the generations before them, contributions to humanity, and that we should recognize and respect that. Uh, crypto in Web3 allows for greater combinations of strength and intelligence to come together and to fund public goods. And I think that that's one of the really great opportunities within the space. Eric, do you think that cryptocurrency enables individualism more than it enables collectivism? Is, it, is cryptocurrency inherently an individualist technology? Uh, yeah, cryptocurrency is absolutely fundamentally an individualist technology. It provides every individual with sovereignty over their wealth, their finances, and now far beyond finance. So absolutely, yes. Um, at the same time, I mean, I agree with a lot of what, what Kevin is saying. Uh, public goods are very important. I think what we disagree with is like how they should be funded. Just because something is a public good doesn't mean you need to steal from your neighbor in order to fund it. So um, I think that's where, that's where we tend to disagree on things. 
But yeah, cryptocurrency, I mean, you can, you can tell just from this event, like how individualistic it is, right? There are people here from all different backgrounds, all different places in the world. They see different things when they look into the prism of Ethereum. And um, I think that that's a beautiful thing. Eric, I want to make a counterpoint to that. So many people from so many different walks of life are all here. We're all, so all the individuals of many, many different flavors are all in the same room sharing the same vibes. Is that not collectivist? I guess we have to define collectivism, right? Uh, there's a definition of collectivism, which I think is the dangerous one, in which groups of individuals are coerced into certain behaviors that they wouldn't otherwise be doing. I think the most dangerous forms of collectivism tend to turn into war, where hundreds and thousands uh, or millions of people are literally murdered under the banner of collectivism. Wars always happen under the banner of collectivism, under the banner of nationalism. Um, I'm completely opposed to that. And so for everything that you can say about how the internet got funded by the government, yes, okay, what other things has DARPA funded, right? Uh, the same organization literally built the nuclear bomb and, and murdered 100,000 people in Japan. So personally, I want to find different ways of funding public goods than giving it the money forcefully or taking it from my neighbor and giving it to like the most atrocious organizations on earth. Kevin, do you want to respond to that? Uh, well, I, I, I'm happy to respond to that, but I think generally what we're trying to do is create a synthesis, not a, a tit-for-tat uh, conversation between me and Eric. I guess I'll just say that uh, there are different ways that collectivists and individualists define each other. So um, an individualist will, uh, I think, define themselves uh, on the basis of mutualism and uh, cooperation. Whereas a collectivist will focus on group goals, what's best for the collective group and the interpersonal relationships in, uh, in them. And I think that an individualist would define a collectivist as uh, being willing to accept forced coercive cooperation in order to meet those group goals. And that's the primary sort of like axis of, of disagreement is whether or not uh, coercion is an acceptable means to an end. And I guess, you know, the, the real question for me is, would you accept a 20% tax on your income to create a 10,000% better world? Uh, Kevin, uh, we, we started this industry with Bitcoin, which is, I think, uh, the most individualist part of this whole entire industry. But I also kind of think that this Web3 phenomenon and these uh, community-based organi organization phenomenons is much more collectivist. Do you see that uh, the, the Web3 side of uh, the, the crypto revolution as we are currently in that phase? Is that the collectivist side of things that's coming out? Um, I think that Ethereum, first off, I don't know much about Bitcoin. Is that even still a thing anymore? <laughs> Rude. <clears throat> Ethereum is a programmable, Turing-complete, global, uh, transparent, and immutable substrate for human coordination. And when something is programmable, you can program your values into your money. And so I think that there will be different parts of the Web3 ecosystem that will 
program different values into different monetary systems, and some of them will tend more towards multiplayer games and collectivist type things, and uh, some of them will tend towards more single player games, and I think that that's great. The great thing about crypto is that it's founded in a root of, of not your keys, not your coins, and that allows you to fundamentally have sovereignty over your bank account, which is fucking cool. And then from there, from that foundation, we can build more non-coercive collectivist systems. And so imagine a global uh, web scale infrastructure for funding public goods that is non-coercive. I think that that is the synthesis of Eric's value set, my value set, the synthesis of what's possible in this space. And I think that we should reorient the conversation around how to create a synthesis of cypherpunk values and solarpunk values and realize that world together. So in search of that synthesis, you guys, I think, have both articulated a pragmatic argument, but coming from two different angles. Eric said that um, we, we, DARPA made the internet, but it also made the nuclear bomb. Or, uh, well, we can create one good thing out of, uh, out of a collectivist uh, government uh, efforts. 10,000 evils come after that. But then Kevin says that what good is your what good is your Lambo if the sky's on fire? And so we need some sort of government uh, management or public goods funding to make sure that the, the, the sky's not on fire. Both of you guys seem to be articulating pragmatism as, uh, as your arguments. How do you guys square this thing? Uh, Eric, can we start with you? I think when I, when I look into, into the crypto world, I see I see people ultimately cooperating peacefully with no central coercion. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful example of, of what public goods actually can be created without uh, coercive funding, right? There are so many things that the public here use in terms of infrastructure, code, mathematics, language. Uh, all of these are public goods and they're not you know, funded coercively. So I think a lot of people maybe just don't quite realize how much actual spontaneous order exists around them that isn't coercively funded in the first place. Kevin, you want to answer that same question? Do you want me to repeat it? Uh, sorry, could you repeat the question? Yeah, both of you guys seem to make uh, uh, pragmatic arguments uh, to justify why perhaps you should prioritize collectivism over individualism. Uh, Eric said that, well, well, we can produce the internet via collectivism. We might actually produce wars as a result. And the trade-offs, Eric, and, and uh, what I think Eric says, the trade-offs just aren't worth it. But then you say, pragmatically, it's actually just worth it if the government can take 20% of my money, if they can make my roads not bumpy and my air very clean and my water very clear. Uh, so how do, we, how do we square these things when both of you guys are making pragmatic arguments? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it sort of just depends on what you think the biggest threat to human thriving is. Um, you know, I think that we're in this space to create a, th a thriving of a global citizenry that no matter where you're from, uh, no matter who you are, what your background is, that you can create thriving uh, both economically, emotionally, socially, and uh, and and so I think that you know it really just kind of depends on whether you think the biggest threat to your thriving uh, comes from coercion of a collectivist actor, or if you think that the biggest threat to your thriving comes from global coordination failures like 
climate change, underfunded digital public goods, transportation networks, clean air and water, herd immunity, uh, and those type of things. And so uh, depending on which one of those things you think are the biggest threat to your thriving, I, I think that maybe that's where the chips fall. All right, guys. In your opinion, what's the best way to find a non-coercive way to fund public goods? How would you prefer it be done, Eric? First, you have to define what public goods should actually be, right? So my main, one of my main issues with government generally is that they simply get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're always providing more and more things under the, under the guise of public good. So there's probably a lot of things that, that Kevin and I both think are like legitimate public goods that need funding, but that's such a small portion of what government money actually goes to. So limiting the scope of what is an actual public good, I think, is important first. I think we all know, like, if the only thing the government did was make sure the air was clean and build roads, like, there would be no libertarian movement, right? That wouldn't be a thing. But that's not actually what your money goes for. That's just such a, a tiny piece of it. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that uh, the question is how do we coordinate to fund public goods? And one of the things that I see with... Uh, Okay, so the government, uh, the 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 government uh, definitely has a large administrative state that is slow and bureaucratic and way less efficient than a lot of the technology that uh, that we see in this space and in technology in general. Um, I do think that one of the big opportunities that I see is is uh, with Ethereum, we've got a transparent, immutable programmable substrate for global coordination. So nation states cannot do global coordination around global coordination failures. Nation states, because they don't have a transparent, incorruptible ledger for you to check on what they're doing, um, you have an opportunity for this administrative state to really grow and to get really bloated. And so what if we shifted the foundation of funding some of these public goods onto something that was more transparent uh, and could not be corrupted? Uh, you know, a smart contract, once it's deployed, cannot be, uh, cannot be changed even if the values of the person who deployed it changed. Whereas, you know, with, with a lot of these governments, it depends on what bureaucrat is in charge of administering the system. And so I, I really just think that we've got a foundationally better substrate for human coordination with blockchain-based systems for creating transparency and therefore accountability. And therefore, we can build systems to coordinate without a large administrative state. And maybe that's the synthesis of where we're going. I want to lean into the, the where we're going part of that. Um, Eric, how do you think that this, the crypto industry's role, how does, that, uh, our, how does this industry play a role in funding public goods over the long term? We're, we're still in the very nascent phase of crypto, a lot of experiments going around. Do you think that uh, this industry actually has a, a role to play with making public goods funded and safe and, and secure for the long term? Uh, I, I may be stuck in the past, but my, my generation of crypto people are still focused on sort of the first mission, which is removing money and finance out of the hands of government. Um, that, that, is, um, that is a monumental undertaking and is, is starting to work, but it's gonna be like a decades long process. I, I love that there are people now in crypto that have different missions and are using this technology in other ways, so you know that's great. 
But when, when someone says, like, how should crypto be used to fund public goods, that's such an alien concept to me um, because it seems like a question that might be appropriate uh, in the future. But today, today, we still have the Federal Reserve. Today, someone born in a certain country can't send money to someone else uh, just because of, like, their, their background. Today, everyone here and their fiat currencies are being debased at 10% a year. And until we stop that cancer, um, I think it's almost futile to start talking about the public goods that also do need funding in some other way. It, I, I think what your answer was just that money is a public good and government is ruining that public good for the rest of us by debasing the fiat currency. Is maybe, that, is that maybe right? Maybe I'll, I'll carry this cancer metaphor a little further. If you're, if you're dying of cancer, you don't want to talk about like what what clothes should I be wearing right now, right? Like, that might be important if you're not dying of cancer, but when you're dying of cancer, you stop the cancer. I believe that fiat currency is a cancer upon the world, and when, once that gets solved, um, I will be the first one to start figuring out other important problems that humanity has to tackle. Is, is money the meta-public good? Uh, no, money is not a public good. Uh, money is a private good. It should be a private good. Everyone's money is belonging to them and themselves. But we all use the same monies. And so, yes, I have my money that's in, like, that I own, but I only own that money because everyone else also owns that money because it's a global utility system. Do you not consider that the, you know, the, the instantiation of gold, for example, is a system that exists all across the world that we are all collectively using as a utility of transferring value? And so when you say that we're debasing money, I hear that we're, we're ruining a public good. Yeah, go gold wasn't instantiated. Gold emerged through the trading of goods uh, by individual private parties based on their individual self-interest, right? So this is actually an example of something that is useful, but that is purely private. It does not require government funding. It does not require it to be like, it's not a public good. It's just individual commodity that individuals use as and when they see fit. Um, I think something like, something like air is a much more difficult challenge because it is shared among everyone. Uh, it's very hard to like limit and uh, and contain it. So there's a lot of important questions of like how to keep air clean. I think that's a f that's a fair point to debate. Kevin, I want to go back to the question of how crypto can help fund public goods over the long term. And you have a book right there called Green Pilled, uh, talking about regenerative crypto economics. Regenerative crypto economics is that another word for helping fund public goods? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, I, I, yes, is the answer. And thank you for shilling this book about how crypto can regenerate the world that I wrote so that I don't have to. <laughs> uh, the reason why the book is called Green Pilled and not, uh, it doesn't have the word public good in the name, is that you need a lecture in economics to understand what public goods are, but everyone viscerally understands regen, regenerative systems, systems that recover over time and are anti-fragile when exposed to stress are regenerative. And public goods are a subset of that. But I do not want to be overly technocratic and get into economics and definitions with people when I'm trying to explain how crypto is good for the world, because that is a good way of losing people. So that's why we're talking about green pills and regenerative crypto economics instead of public goods in 
the book. And the answer to your question is that the atomic unit of how crypto can regenerate the world is an impact DAO. An impact DAO is defined only as something that has a positive externality for the world. So basically that positive externality can be financial, like Gitcoin grants, creating funding for open source software. We funded $53 million worth of open source thus far. Thanks, Eric. Not non-coercively. Uh, um, and uh, so that is one example of an impact DAO. Uh, another example of an impact DAO is, uh, I think like ClimaDAO is a really great example of an impact DAO that is tokenizing carbon credits in order to allow us to purchase, car purpose, purchase carbon credits using Ethereum and therefore pay down the carbon impact of not only the Ethereum ecosystem, but eventually the entire world uh, using, using uh, Ethereum technology. And I think another great example is proof of humanity. Identity and the ability to transact as a human uh, is, is regenerative for the world. There are people in Argentina that, because they have civil resistance on proof of humanity, are living off of UBI. Fuck yeah, that is the world that we want to create. So the impact DAO is the atomic unit of how we build a regenerative crypto economic system. Impact DAOs have positive externalities and they can be on many different vectors. Financial, material, social, intellectual. Shout out to Gregory, Lan Gregory Landua, who is around here and uh, talks about eight different forms of capital of which financial is only one of them. And by stacking these impact DAOs on top of each other and choosing to invest our financial resources, our intellectual resources into them, that is how we build a non-coercive regenerative infrastructure for the world and I really hope to see this community at ETH Denver and beyond investing in creating positive externalities with the projects that you are all building because the book is called how crypto could regenerate the world and in order to get us to a world where crypto will regenerate the world we all have to choose it and that means all of you yeah I, I love everything that you just said Kevin because none of it is coercive I love yeah. that and I love that crypto technology has allowed that kind of thing to flourish and for all this creative energy to go to these problems with technology that wasn't around a decade ago. Yeah, fuck yeah. Kevin, when you talk about regenerative crypto mom, uh, economics, I picture in my head a mesh network of many, many systems that all have positive externalities upon the world. And you, you rattled off a bunch of different categories where if we can make impact owls in all these different categories and they can grow to fill the void of the world around us, all of a sudden the engagement in these things start to produce some sort of basal level of funding for the world around us. As these, this mesh network of DAOs uh, grows out and, and uh, uh, comes to maturity, does that strip away some of the responsibilities that governments uh, currently have? Um, we're not there yet, and I don't really speak bureaucrat, so I don't really know. Sorry. <laughs> All right, guys, I want to close out and, and tra change this uh, conversation to something a little bit more topical, which is East Denver. You guys are both veterans of East Denver. Eric, what does East Denver mean for you? Um, so I'm from Colorado, and uh, it's, I mean, for me, it's been really fun to see the 
this branch of crypto, which is Ethereum, it's become a, a major branch, uh, like come back to my hometown and where I'm from and for, every, for all of you to visit this beautiful state is just very special to me. Um, you know, like back in the day when I would go to Bitcoin conferences, it was always in other far off places and that's, that's great. But to see, to see it come full circle and come back to Colorado is just kind of, um, just kind of special for me being from here. Kevin, same question. What does East Denver mean for you? <clears throat> uh, East Denver is a shelling point for us all to come together, commune with our collective possibility, build the future, and we are going to put Colorado on the map as the place to move to when, when you want to build the future. Miami's got nothing on Colorado, David. All right, I want to thank my two guests. Eric and Kevin, I appreciate both of you guys are here, personal heroes of mine. And every time you guys speak, I always listen. So it's an honor to be able to ask you questions directly, face to face. Cheers. Thanks, David. Thank Cheers. You. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin. Slingshot is a decentralized trading platform that combines the performance and ease of a centralized exchange with the openness and transparency of DeFi. Slingshot aggregates liquidity from all of DeFi in order to find the best price on thousands of crypto assets. Every token on Slingshot comes with a price chart and trade logs to give you insights into the market's activity in real time. Slingshot is available on Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism, saving you from the high gas fees and low transaction speeds of the Ethereum L1. There are no fees to trade on Slingshot, and any positive slippage is given to the users. Trading on Slingshot is a social experience. You can even set your chat avatar to your favorite NFT or soon a Slingshot 2099 NFT avatar. Once you bridge your assets to Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, go to app.slingshot.finance to trade and use the chat box to share your trades with others and find other tokens to ape into. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Over 250 projects have already deployed on Arbitrum, and Arbitrum's DeFi and NFT ecosystems are growing rapidly. Arbitrum increases Ethereum speed by orders of magnitude for a fraction of the cost of the average gas fee. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of decentralization and security. If you're a developer who wants low gas fees and instant transactions for your users, visit developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building your application on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps or NFT projects building on Arbitrum. Many of your favorite apps are already live, with many more coming over soon. You can find these apps at portal.arbitrum.one, and you can bridge your assets over to Arbitrum using bridge.arbitrum.io in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be. Fast, cheap, and friction-free. The Gemini Exchange has been my exchange of choice ever since I got into crypto. I use Gemini to both buy the dips and also manage my regular automatic monthly purchases of my preferred crypto asset. On Gemini, you'll find over 50 different cryptos, including many of the top DeFi and metaverse tokens like YFI and Axie Infinity. Using Gemini Earn, you can earn yield on your various cryptos, including 8% on the GUSD stablecoin. Gemini is available in all 50 states and more than 50 countries worldwide. So if you're looking to upgrade your crypto exchange, sign up at Gemini with Gemini.com slash GoBankless and get $15 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. That's Gemini.com slash GoBankless. Andrew, it's, a, it's pretty surreal to see you at East Denver at an Ethereum Web3 conference. Um, why are you here? First, I have to say, when I was running for president, one of the first communities that embraced me was the crypto community. Folks who had a sense of the future 
had a vision, and also a spirit of optimism and possibility and abundance. And so when I spoke at Consensus a couple of years ago, when I spoke at a Blockchain for Good conference, I felt that the folks in this community were super aligned with what I was trying to do on the presidential. And it's a thrill to be now here in earnest trying to contribute and help. Because I, I firmly believe that the work that so many people here are doing can help contribute to the end of poverty in our time, which has been my mission for the last number of years. And I know a lot of people here want to take that mission forward as quickly as we can. Andrew, I think a lot of, uh, one of the differences between you and the average politician is you think in longer terms than the average politician. A lot of the average politician is trying to get reelected in two to four years, but you're thinking about things like automation and how do we support every single individual on this planet in an economic way. And I think that's why you find alignment with uh, the crypto community, with the Web3 community. Uh, can you talk about just the importance of thinking in the long term and how that sets you apart as a politician? Now, I, I think a lot of you know that I'm something of an accidental political figure. Uh, certainly, there wasn't a lot of, you're going to be president in the Yang household when I was growing up. Like, that wasn't the conversation. <laughs> it was more like, you know, keep your head down, get good grades, clean your room, that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I ran in part because I didn't feel like our current political system was thinking long term, was going to actually uh, champion bigger solutions like universal basic income or some of the things that you all are working on, like the next generation financial system. And I think that there are real parallels to Web3 and someone who's trying to make a difference in our political system right now because there's an entrenched system that is doing its thing and is highly resistant to someone who comes along and says, hey, maybe we should do things differently, maybe we can do something that's more bottom up than top down. Uh, so the goal is, in, in my mind, to take the innovation uh, that's improving people's lives and help, people, help the folks in DC understand that this is not something that only will benefit a narrow few. If we do it right, it can benefit millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions over time. Andrew, there's a, a decent amount of incumbency in the world, not just in politicians, but in our social structures, the corporations. Things just seem entrenched, and that has caused a lot of uh, social strife. And one of the things that I think the, the Web3 world is really trying to do is how do we build out new social systems? But how do we actually convince Washington that we need to churn over new institutions? How do we convince the people, the, the, the leaders of countries all over the world that it's time for change? I, I'm so proud to have announced this week the launch of Lobby3. Uh, it's lobby3.io and the goal is that we can make a case to the folks in DC who are frankly right now in the process of writing these rules to have a fuller and broader understanding of not just the risks but also the opportunities and rewards. And the fact is right now, if you're in DC, you tend to think more in terms of one side than the other. So we can translate the work you all are doing, but we, it, it's not gonna happen on its own. If you imagine someone sitting in an office building in DC and their approach to these technologies, it's not just you know time zones away from this gathering, it's like a completely different frame of reference, a different mindset. So we have to invest resources in trying to bring the stories and the opportunities to the folks in DC as quickly as we can. In my view, the biggest risk 
to Web3 is that onerous regulations come out of DC over this next number of years and push a lot of the development energy, frankly, outside of the United States. And that's something I would love to prevent. I would love your help in helping me prevent that because I think that innovation and development should take place right here in the US of A. I want to learn a little bit more about Lobby 3 because I think a lot of uh, the, the people in the crowd here who might be part of a DAO or might be part of some social community might find uh, a lot of familiarity with what's going on with Lobby 3. Uh, what, what is Lobby 3 and what's a day in the life of being a part of Lobby 3 like? I, I, I'm going to do my best to summarize the way you try and approach politics here in this room today, which is you try and ignore it, <laughs> honestly, right? Like you're building things, you're making things go faster, and then politics seems irrational and tribal and inefficient, uh, and, and you're like, oh, please let me not have to deal with that stuff. Is that about right? Yeah, that's very reasonable. Uh, I was right there with you before I made the, the decision to run for President of the United States circa <laughs> 2017. So, that's the world that you'd like to operate in, but you also sense on some level that there are now forces that are, are pushing towards much more direct regulation and oversight of Web3 technologies and digital currencies that are going to be written not you know, three years from now, but in my opinion, it's gonna be measured in weeks and months. Uh, the Biden administration is likely going to have an executive order that gets issued in the next one to two weeks charging the different agencies with a coordinated regulatory approach to Web3 technologies. So even if you'd love to ignore this stuff and you, know, you want to just like let it, someone else deal with this, it's going to end up impacting your work at some point in this next little while, probably. So the goal has to be to try and make it so that to the extent these regulations are formulated, they're reasonable, they're transparent, they're done in coordination with industry leaders and people who are just trying to, to build from the, from the bottom up here in the industry. And that's what we're going to do with Lobby 3. We're going to build a coordinated effort. We're going to have professional lobbyists uh, in DC, yes, but we're also going to be doing grassroots efforts in congressional districts where they just need to see this technology in action. There are so many misconceptions about the people that benefit from these technologies that if we can show people in real life Folks are benefiting from digital wallets, from next generation of financial services. It can help to shift the perception that right now is in danger of congealing into rules and regulations. One of the lines that always resonated with me, and I think this is rampant throughout Washington, is that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so we all have a responsibility in this industry to be at the table. And I think that's what Lobby 3 is doing. It's giving everyone else, everyone here in this room a voice to speak about what are our values and how can we get Washington to align with them rather than just stamp out what the innovations that we have here are today. Um, for everyone listening, everyone in this room and everyone listening on YouTube, what's like the easiest thing that they can do to help move that needle forward, either with Lobby 3 or just helping having uh, crypto be represented in Washington? Well, within Lobby 3, join our Discord. You can go to lobby3.io. Uh, we've made it so it's very, very accessible to be able to join Lobby 3 DAO. Like, it, it's going to be something that if you want to participate, you should be able to do so. Uh, and bigger picture, let people know that, look, there's a caricature going on around 
uh, the communities that benefit from Web3 that isn't accurate. The use cases are, go well beyond. What do you all think that the DC conception of use cases for digital currencies are? Money laundering, drug deals, human trafficking. Uh, you know, that, that if you were to ask someone in DC, like what are the top uses, like those three things would probably pop into their list top five. And you all know that there are millions of other pur purposes and transactions uh, that the technology is used for every single day. So in addition to getting involved with Lobby 3 directly, the single biggest thing you can do is spread the word about the fact that, look, there are creators that are being empowered in totally different ways. There are organizations that are, are able to govern themselves in whole new ways. There is a technology that can al al allow us to get away from, frankly, having these megacorps uh, have control over our lives, uh, in part because we're not able to interact with each other uh, with trust and transparency. And so if you introduce that, and you can see why in some ways that there are folks that have a kind of resistant attitude very early on. I mean, a, a lot of political figures might talk about a particular version of the world or values, but when they're presented with the actual possibility that that world could exist, uh, that they don't embrace it. They actually sort of, you know, like shy away from it. Uh, so it, it's a fascinating challenge, and it's something that I would love your help with undertaking, because I'm going to go on a limb and say the future of Web3 depends upon what we do collectively in the next 12 months. Is Lobby3 a DAO? Yeah, Lobby3 DAO, it's in the name. So, you know, it, it itself will be a decentralized autonomous organization. When someone asks me what the priorities of the DAO will be, I respond to ask the DAO. Who are the other leaders of the Lobby3 DAO? So I, I have a team that I've worked with for quite some time that are part of Lobby3 itself. Uh, you're all not going to believe this. Well, maybe you will. You probably believe it. But um, so I, I actually hired a bunch of DC lobbyists back in 2020 to advocate for cash relief and the child tax credit and anti-poverty measures. And, and I did it in part because it was based on an Onion article I'd read in 2011 that said the American people hire lobbyists to fight for interests on Capitol Hill. Think about that for a second. And it, I, I thought it was the funniest thing. I was like, uh, you know, that, that the fact that we'd have to hire a lobbyist, but I was like, oh, we probably should hire a lobbyist. And so in 2020, I hired a bunch of lobbyists to advocate for anti-poverty measures. And now that team is going to be spearheading our conveying the realities of the opportunities around Web3 to folks in DC. In DC right now, there's the message in the messenger. And I want you to imagine if you were, uh, let's say, a Democratic member of Congress in that office. And then someone comes to you and says, hey, these technologies can really help people. Uh, if, if the messenger that's bringing it to them is a bipartisan think tank or an anti-poverty organization, that's like a different conversation than if they uh, have something like professional like industry association in their names. You know what I mean? Like, like that, that's the reality of what's happening in DC right now. So I'm, hap I'm proud to say I've been working on anti-poverty initiatives in DC for the last two years. And in my mind, Web3 could be the biggest anti-poverty initiative in the history of the world. Andrew, you, when you ran for president, you moved the Overton window on a lot of things. 
and you were the figurehead that spoke a lot uh, of reason about new issues and new ways, and it really changed the whole entire Democratic platform, regardless of whether you won or lost. But you are just one man, and you have actually spun off and inspired many other people who are also running for uh, elected official offices in, in different states. Uh, Erica Rose comes to mind. Um, and if this movement of what you inspired, whatever this movement is, uh, it needs to have other leaders. It needs to decentralize, because decentralized networks are impossible to stamp out. And all that's needed for a decentralized network to exist is for people to believe in it. And I think the DAO model is uh, allowing people to rise up and allow this uh, movement to be spearheaded by more and more, more people. Is that the goal? Uh, that, that's... 100% the goal, David. And Erica Rhodes, raise your hand if you know who Erica Rhodes is. All right, so I want you to imagine a member of Congress, let's call him Brad Sherman, uh, who really hates crypto. Boo. He's an incumbent that really no one likes, honestly. He's like one of those unliked uh, members of Congress who's just been hanging out for a while. Um, he is unabashedly anti-cryptocurrency, anti-Web3, he has a, a lot of backers in the, frankly, like the banking system. Uh, now his opponent is Erica Rhodes, who's completely pro-Web3, and she also has a compelling personal story. She's an elementary school teacher. Uh, she's uh, half black, half Asian. She was a volunteer in my campaign who's now running for Congress, has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, had a Twitter spaces with Jack Dorsey the other day. Uh, so if you want someone like Brad Sherman to know that being against this industry is a political loser, then you should back his opponent, Erica Rhodes. Uh, you can look it up, it's Erica for Congress. It's spelled A-A-R-I-K-A. -A -A. So there, there are different candidates like this around the country that in my mind, the community should be getting behind. Now this is not Lobby 3's work. Lobby 3's work is gonna be go to DC and talk sense to the regulators. Uh, but there are other people who are putting political energy behind folks who are fighting for this industry, and I think that we owe them our support, honestly. For those of you that happen to live in California 30th District, that's your race. So, I'm sure there's some of you in there. Um, Andrew, a lot of DAOs in the Web3 world have roadmaps. Does the Lobby3 DAO have a roadmap? Yeah, if you go to lobby3.io, there, there is a roadmap. Uh, one of the things I would suggest, though, is that the priorities of the DAO will probably shift in real time as the agencies actually put forward draft rules and a bunch of other things. So you're going to want to be adaptable uh, and responsive in real time. For those of you who want nothing to do with DC, um, maybe some of you actually could find some enjoyment and learning about this process, maybe. I don't know if that's too far a bridge. Um, one of the things I describe to people as you can actually gamify lobbying, maybe. You could say like, hey, like that, you know, here's a member of Congress, here's an agency, here's a this. Um, so the roadmap of the DAO, I'm sure, will end up shifting as different priorities emerge because this is very much a right now concern. Uh, the Biden administration has announced that an executive order is gonna come out probably again in the next one to two weeks. Do you know more details about that executive order? What, what do you know about that? That seems actually a really big deal. Uh, so what I've heard is that the executive order uh, will say to the agencies, let's come up with a coordinated regulatory response, but it will not put forward the response itself, 
just yet. Um, so what it is to me is the starting gun. It's like, okay, these agencies are then going to draft these rules and we need to have a direct line with them so that they don't write rules that are frankly very, very onerous, very heavy handed, uh, prioritize managing the risk well over innovation and development and, and growth. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to say that we're relatively optimistic about the executive order announcement itself, um, but it should be a massive call to action for the Web3 community. This is an all hands on deck moment. Uh, it, it really is. I want you to imagine a world where eight months from now, a bunch of rules come out of DC that end up pushing a lot of energy overseas, uh, reducing the enterprise value of folks who've been working on projects for years and years. This is all very much a realistic possibility. Uh, I also want you to imagine a world where rules come out that you might not love, but actually allow you to operate and build for the long term. Uh, and I, I dare say that if you were to have this latter scenario, you might see the energy in the industry shoot up because right now there is an overhang of this regulatory risk. Like no one knows exactly what the approaches are going to be, what the regime's going to be, what the rules are going to be, even who the regulator is necessarily going to be. So if you get clarity on those things, then you can imagine as glorious as this gathering is here today in Denver, you can imagine the future of this just multiplying over and over again because everyone will know what the rules of the road are. That's a vision I'm willing to fight for and I hope you'll join me in it. So can you model out what we need to do as an industry to turn this opportunity into a W? And what would we, what would also happen if this would actually turn into an L? Like, how could we drop the ball here? What would we fail at? And also, what do we need to do to make sure it's a dub? Well, I, I think the, the single biggest thing we, we have to do is know that as much as you might dislike politics, uh, a lot of you might even think like, hey, I, I hate the idea of any regulation. Um, in my mind, some form of regulation is going to have to be accepted and somewhat inevitable for the industry to mature. Um, but the path of least resistance, and there are people in the industry that are in direct uh, touch with the folks in DC, like the Blockchain Association, Blockchain Association and others. So there are folks who are advocating, uh, but the, the single biggest misstep would be Ah, someone else will take care of it. Like I'm doing my thing. Like, you know, like let, let me just focus on on this for the the time being, because someone in this community has to make the proper investments and resources and energy and time and commitment to try and keep these regulations on the the right side of reasonable. Uh, and I I am. I'm not sure if you can tell from my tone of voice. Like I am kind of concerned. I'm actually going to pose this thought question to you all. How much do you trust Washington D.C. to just get things right? So if that's a relatively low level of confidence, then I want you to think about what would need to happen for you to have a higher confidence level. And generally speaking, the the gap between where you are now and that higher confidence level involves resources, investment, ingenuity, time, energy, passion, narratives, storytelling, broadening people's conception of what is possible. It's one reason why I love Web3 so much is like this is a group of people that's legitimately building a better version of the future. And unfortunately, there are so many Americans who right now are struggling with like this boot of scarcity on their throat. Uh, and then when you say to them, it's like, hey, these great things are possible, they're unable to envision them. You know what I mean? 
Like, like th that has to be the biggest thing that we change together is if we help them see what's possible and maybe even get that boot off their throats, then we can live in a version of the future that we'll be proud of. Andrew, you talked about time, energy, attention, resources. These are all things that DAOs need. Uh, so when you are growing the, the Lobby 3 DAO, you and the other, other DAO leaders in there, the organi organizers, what talent or what resources does Lobby 3 DAO need the most? Does it need capital? Does it need foot soldiers? Does it need developers? Uh, what, what could it use the most? Everything you just listed there, David, for sure. Uh, I, I'm not going to, you know, to pretend like we are going to need uh, probably some significant institutional resources who will come in, and I'm happy to say that many of them seem very excited about this effort. Uh, but then we're also going to need people who are helping us identify the stories to amplify, uh, who are reaching out directly to folks in a particular community saying, look, like, members of Congress will respond to their constituents. So there are folks that you know that are in particular parts of the country that could end up being very, very crucial. Uh, it, it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck effort. And this is the, the single thing I would say, is like if you think this is a problem that just some like industry heavyweight with a lot of money can solve, like that's probably not quite what we're facing right now. You know what I mean? Like You have to think about, again, that Democratic member of Congress in Ohio or Michigan or another part of the country, like what do they care about? What is going to make them go from being very skeptical or dubious about cryptocurrencies and Web3 to being neutral and maybe even positive? Uh, and sometimes it's the kind of thing where if you just like threw your weight around DC, like maybe that moves some people. But what would be most effective, and this is actually in some ways a cause for optimism, it would be people in their community benefiting from Web3. And then if, if they're actually shown that, if like a local community leader or an activist or a nonprofit says, hey, look what it's doing for this neighborhood that you represent, that's the single most powerful way we can help turn this negativity around uh, among Congress members. I think the, the Web3 community, traditionally crypto has been very like anti-government, we can do it ourselves, no government. But the Web3 community I think is a little bit more reasonable, at least in my opinion, that we want to be able to be better than the government, but we'll accept government regulations at the end of the day. And we've seen different leaders show up and actually lean into politics. Ryan Selkis, I saw him over there not too long ago, taking a leadership position. What advice do you have for people that might actually want to lean in and be representatives of Web3 in, in Washington or in their local communities or in other regulator, regulatory bodies? Oh, there are a number of organizations that are now advocating uh, for sensible regulations. Uh, Blockchain Association I just mentioned is, is one. Uh, Lobby3 will be a, a new member of this system. But certainly, if there is someone who wants to lead on this charge, uh, just get in touch with me or Kristen Smith or one of the other people that's actually talking to the folks in, in D.C. Uh, because we need you. We need you to lean in and, and help lead. And I will suggest that this is something that's going to help everyone here. It's going to help everyone who could potentially benefit from these technologies. Uh, I pride myself on just trying to be, you know, frankly, like, you know, like intelligent about like how you invest time and energy. Like right now, this is maybe arguably the most important area of investment for Web3, in my opinion. Because you're looking at a legislative window and a regulatory window that, that's like very much open right now. Um, and 
if you rewind a couple of years ago, this was not on anyone's radar. You know what I mean? Like, if you were to say, hey, we need to, like, add shape this, it's like, yeah, you know, like, it's not really there. It's there now. Like, this is very much, like, uh, on the front burner for a number of people in D.C. Uh, so we have to get after it right now. All right, Andrew, I got one last question for you, and then we're going to open up to questions. So if you have a good question, you can line up at the microphone, and we're going to get there in a second, right after I ask my last one. Andrew, one of the things I think uh, we align most with between you and the Web3 community is we're all optimistic about the future because we think we can build it better. Why are you optimistic about the future? What makes you optimistic? Why am, why am I optimistic about the future? I'm optimistic about the future because of entrepreneurs who are solving problems in front of them every day. Uh, that, that's what's made me tick. That's what led me to run for president. Believe it or not, I just saw a giant problem. I thought I could help solve it. Uh, and we need that approach and orientation and energy more than ever. Because like I said before, there are so many Americans who are struggling right now. Not just Americans, but around the world. I don't know if you've noticed, but like the world is kind of going to shit. I mean, I don't know if you all like sense that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But so when you ask my causes for optimism, it's that things can change really quickly, both positively and negatively. So we have to take advantage of the positive as well as the negative. We can't just say like, oh, things are gonna get worse. I'm gonna do my own thing over here. That's actually my challenge to the folks here together in Denver today. And if you're watching on YouTube, fine, whatever. Is that let's make it so that people can see the benefits of these technologies in the real fucking world as quickly as possible. All right, we've just got about two minutes left, so we're going to take a few quick questions, ideally simple ones. Uh, can you take it away for us? Right. Um, hi, I'm Dr. Kelly Page from Digital Promise, uh, the National Center for Research in Emerging Tech in Education and Learning. I'm curious your thoughts on the decentralization of learner and employee data uh, that we have in our institutions, uh, both across the country, uh, as well as our organizations, and the emerging trend towards LERs, learning and employment records being decentralized. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, I I'm a huge believer in anything that helps uh, create alternate paths to employment that don't involve four-year degrees or traditional credentialing. Uh, you know, r right now, like, so much of it operates in an, an antiquated system. It's not serving people well. Uh, pe people are doing what they think they're supposed to do, incurring massive debt loads. They're not finding the opportunities that they need. Uh, so if there is a way that you can actually translate your value and data to potential employers that's independent of our current uh, educational system and even to some extent like the professional advancement system that exists, I would be 100% supportive and we need to do more in that area. All right, thank you. Andrew, uh, my question is about the forward party and if you plan on leveraging Web3 within your campaigning or once you have members get into office, what the stance uh, for legislation might be. Thank you. So the question's about the forward party. I don't know how many of you know, but I started a third party in the United States of America. Uh, and I did that in part because the duopoly is not working. It's actually turning people against each other more than anything else. And the forward party wants to be the party of technological advancement and progress. So we're going to use Web3 technologies 
at, at every, every stage, hopefully. Um, my goal is that there's a DAO, and again, the joys of it is that we may have nothing to do with the DAO, that looks up and, and tries to find the best opportunities for independent political candidates, for people who are running as Democrats or Republicans who are aligned. Uh, and, and we put our energy and ingenuity behind this because you have a failing political system. Uh, you have failing systems of different kinds in America, but the failing political system is one that is right in front of everyone. 62% of Americans want to move on from the duopoly. They just don't know how to do it. And I'm going to suggest that the people here in this room can show them how we can move on. Say, look, it doesn't need to be that you have no choice but to slump and accept the lesser of two evils. You can actually invest in a positive alternative. Awesome. Thank you. I believe we just have time for one last question, uh, so take it away. Cool. Hi, Mr. Yang. Um, I'm wondering if you can lay out kind of what are the gaps in Washington that the community can help with? So is it knowledge? Is it, um, yeah, analysis? Like, what do they sort of not understand about tokens or innovation that might happen that we can all kind of help with? Yeah, what are the gaps? Oh, man, thank you for the question. The reason I'm laughing is because uh, like the, the, the gaps are not gaps. The gaps are essentially a gulf uh, or a chasm. Um, so the average member of the House of Representatives is approximately 59 years old. The average US Senator is approximately 64 years old. The average member of Congress who's been in Congress has been in Congress for 10 to 12 years. So I want you to imagine that human, and then if you ask them, hey, cryptocurrencies, tokens, like digital assets, what do you think? Like they have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and, and, and so right now, they're looking around saying, what do I think about this? They ask their policy team, what is our stance on this? The policy team then looks up and says, what is our stance on this? And then they will ask a few people, hey, like, what's a reasonable place to land on this? The people they may ask include people in their constituencies. It may include bipartisan policy councils who are known for having like an even-handed approach. One group that they may or may not want to take guidance from would be like the industry itself. Um, because the industry itself, they'll be like, okay, like, I kind of know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me that uh, you know, like we should do next to nothing. Um, and, and so that's the state of affairs right now. But if you were to try and put yourself in the head of the average member of Congress, just imagine total confusion and you are there. Like that, that, that's where it is among the vast, vast majority of them. Um, now that confusion can then be tilted negatively very easily by, for example, a press story about scams. You know, if that's the only thing they see, then they can head in that direction pretty quick. So we have to balance some of the things that are out there in the media ecosystem with some accounts of, again, creators having their lives transformed for the better, people having new access to digital services, like financial services they wouldn't have had otherwise. I'm going to pose this to you all. How many of you think that the negative stories about Web3 outnumber the positive stories? Let's call it 5 or 10 to 1, right? So, so that is the landscape that these lawmakers are forming their opinions in. Uh, and it, it's up to us to try and lead them to a more realistic picture. Don't blame them. Just imagine that they're you know, 50 to 60 year olds who might only know about this stuff because one of their uh, children or like a nephew or niece has been trying to explain it to them unsuccessfully. Andrew Yang, everyone. Thank you, Denver. Let's go. Let's build a future.
It's not going to build itself, am I right? Thank you all.